Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Kendall Deneen, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Assad El-Assad. Dr. Assad is an assistant professor of sociology at Stanford University and a faculty affiliate at the Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity. His new book, Engage and Evade, How Latino Immigrant Families Manage Surveillance in Everyday Life, was published by Princeton University Press in June of this year. The book is a compelling examination of how immigrants from Mexico and Central America selectively engage engage with and or sort of evade surveillance and manage interactions with U.S. surveilling institutions to both avoid and create records of the time in the U.S. uh, in hopes of one day securing a pathway to citizenship. So I want to welcome you to the podcast today, Dr. Asad. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Kendall. I'm excited to be here. Me too. And I'm sorry if you can hear my cat scraping at the door right now in a panic to get in. He'll, I've, he'll I've, got, I've got my dog about to bark throughout this interview, so <laughs> it's perfect. fine. We will we will both uh, survive our oppressive cats and dogs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so to get us started, can you talk a little bit about yourself and how you came to the question of the book? Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I think the, the best way to answer this is sort of to just direct readers to the book, which is I talk a little bit in the preface of the, of the book about my parents' story. So my parents are both immigrants from the West Bank. They've been in the U.S. for several decades at this point, you know, long-term just visiting uh, immigrants, as most immigrants say, I'm only visiting, I'm going to go back home eventually, but then they're here for 50 years, you know, typical things. Um, and there is this story that I tell at the start of the book about um, how my, pa- you know, I was ruffling through my dad's wallet. He doesn't ever keep cash in it. It's just always overstuffed with business cards and and credit cards and receipts and all these other things that he, you're not really clear why he carries them around. And then I found this plastic, fr- which I thought was just a uh, this plastic, almost card type thing. I didn't know what it was pull it out, it's this uh, naturalization card uh, from when he had, it certified basically that he had naturalized to live in the United States and that he was a U.S. citizen and just carries it around with him. So I I came to understand from that, and I tell a lot more of the story in the book, but I came to understand from that that the meanings of legal statuses in the United States among immigrants might vary tremendously because my dad's experience is very different from my mom's experience, who is also a naturalized citizen. And I recount some of that story in the book. But then I sort of, you know, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I think, you know, if, if there are any Milwaukee listeners here, I have an original 414 area code, which I think adds to my uh, to my credibility here. But I grew up in, in the Milwaukee public schools system from elementary school through high school. And I sort of pieced together as I was growing up that, yes, I knew my parents were immigrants, but I also knew that I had friends whose parents were immigrants. And it seemed that the experiences of my friends who are Latinx or who are otherwise sort of non, not my parents, uh, you know, their experiences with the immigration system seem to be be a bit different 
than what my parents were dealing with. You know, my parents, relatively speaking, you know, my mom entered on a green card, my dad on a student visa, but it's, I didn't even know what the word undocumented really meant in high school, but I, I, I can, I grew up reflecting that actually, oh, so much of what my friends were experiencing has a lot to deal with this thing, this legal status that really is just sort of this artificial construction that has so much social meaning. And I tried to write a book that was faithful to the experiences of immigrants in the United States, sort of recognizing both the importance of these state-created and somewhat artificial categories on the one hand, but also the importance of these categories to everyday life on the other hand. And, you know, fast forward a few years and that's how you get a book. Um, Very simple. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I really appreciated how you opened the book. Like, uh, my, the work that I do is really personal to me. And I just, I know that's not obviously not the case for everybody, but it is really exciting to me when I get to like, see the sort of story, right. Of, of, of how someone came to to this question that they've spent so much time and and effort sort of examining. Um, Can we talk a little bit about the, the research process? How did you conduct your research for the book? Yeah, the, and this is, this goes out to all the graduate students out there who want to think about collaborating with senior faculty as a research assistant. You know, I started this project just as a summer research assistant. I had no vision for a long-term, you know, interaction with this project, the people in it, or, or, or anything like that. I just said, oh, it'd be great to get more on-the-ground fieldwork experience. And uh, so Kathy Eden, who's now at Princeton, and Stephanie DeLuca, who's at Johns Hopkins, were, were recruiting research assistants for this two-city study. One in Dallas, or one city was Dallas, and one city was Cleveland. And I said, oh, it'd be really interesting to go to Dallas. You know, I'm, a native, I'm not a native Spanish speaker, but I, I have high-level proficiency in Spanish. And I think it'd be very cool if we had any families who spoke Spanish as their first language, if I could just do that. And this, the broader study was about these trade-offs that families make as they navigate sort of school, childcare, and work, and, and also like where you live. So do you live in a big house in a not-so-nice neighborhood uh, with a not-so-nice school district that's far away from work? Or do you live in a very nice neighborhood in a not-so-big house, probably an apartment that's in a very nice school district, but you're one of like the few racial minorities who lives in these areas. And so that was the original study. And the way that we did the recruitment for this study, it was a very big team effort. And I try to, I try to do it justice in the, in the methodological appendix of the book. Uh, but suffice it to say, there was a lot of driving around Dallas and there was a lot of door knocking. Um, and often you'd have to knock more than one time, often up to six times, just to figure out if someone was home. Um, And so by the end of this first year process, in the second year process, we did the same thing. I went back because I was so fascinated by the experience of the first summer and and getting to meet some of these Latinx immigrant families in the first year. And by the end of the first two years, I discovered that of the 36 Latinx families who were included in the study, 28 turned out to have at least one immigrant household head. Uh, And most of those household heads were undocumented. And that was exciting to me because 
we weren't looking for undocumented immigrants. Uh, you know, we were looking for black, white, and Latino families who who are low, middle, or high, in, who live in low, middle, or high income neighborhoods. And so the fact that in our search for, you know, low and middle income Latinx families, we found a high share of undocumented households uh, was interesting to me from a sociological perspective because I was interested in immigration. I was reading a lot of work, very good work, right, that taught us about a slice of the undocumented experience in the U.S., especially for those people who were already uh, going, you know, facing deportation proceedings, who were undergoing legalization experiences. But I wasn't finding a whole lot of people who were just living, and you know, they weren't. But but here we had this family, who, these families who were not recruited from legal aid clinics or nonprofits. They were not in removal proceedings. And so I had this opportunity now to say, okay, how does a sample of immigrants who are Latinx and primarily undocumented, how do they manage the day-to-day of life in the United States without sort of these, you know, without thinking about these ideas of, of being predisposed to being aware of the legal process already because turns out you have an attorney who's managing your case, right? So none of these people had attorneys. None of these people were going to nonprofits every day. None of these people were going to legal aid clinics every day. It was just a question of what was daily life like and how does surveillance and the threat of punishment factor into those experiences. And so the research process after that was in 2015 and 2018, I returned to Dallas by myself to continue building out this study uh, with the 28 Latino immigrant families that I talked to. And then, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to put everything on the methodological appendix because I feel like it's going to be overpromising at this point. But then, you know, I talked a little bit about, you know, how I did an ethnography of Dallas Immigration Court in 2015 uh, to get some of the perspectives from the immigration authorities who I had not yet been able to talk to. And I, I also added uh, statistical analyses down the road uh, from the American Time Use Survey to validate and, and at a na- in a national level at a national level some of the claims that I was making using the ethnographic and interview based data, and so that's the long and short of of how I did this study. <laughs> Thank you. I really um, I live in Dallas. I moved here for my PhD program, and so it was really interesting to me, you know, because yeah, some of the stuff that you're looking at is like our specific sort of like immigration court system here in the city. And it was just really fascinating to me and obviously really troubling, but really interesting to actually get um, some information about how that works. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I'll say, I will say though, that, you know, I went back a few years later uh, to the immigration court and it, it, you know, it was 2018. I think there was a, the height of one of the, uh, they're always referred to as caravans, right? I don't really like that phrasing. Um, But sort of the last time, that was sort of the first time in a few years that we'd really thought about these large groups of people migrating to the United States. And so a lot of the judges who were in Dallas Immigration Court when I studied in 2015 had actually gone to the border to process a lot of these arrivals um, at the border. And so even the context within Dallas Immigration Court shifted very quickly uh, across the study period. And so 
it is one of these things where, you know, we, we assume that everything that the federal immigration system does is sort of coherent and, and it all pieces together very well. And, you know, it's a federal system. It's meant to be, you know, uniform. Uh, but no, there is a whole lot of variation even across time. And so I think it's, it just becomes easier to follow a place, a single place, and I think talk about um, what is happening in that place because, you know, what's happening in Dallas will be very different from what's happening in Houston, El Paso, San Diego, Los Angeles, and so on and so forth. So, but anyway, uh, I think my, I do appreciate uh, Dallas as a context. And so I'm glad it resonated with you as well. So can you talk a little bit about the kinds of surveillance that this book is, is interested in? Yeah, I think the the term surveillance often evokes uh, drones and you know, closed circuit TVs and fencing and heat sensors and so on and so forth. And there is some of that in the book. And in particular, some of that is coming up in, in the first empirical chapter where I talk about um, how people managed these ideas of sur- these these traditional ideas of surveillance as they mi- made the decision to migrate to the United States and how they actually entered the country. But in fact, most of the book is not about these ideas. Most of the surveillance that I'm talking about is what I call these everyday forms of surveillance that might characterize the lives of basically everyone in the United States, but has extra weight or, or severity for undocumented immigrants. And so I'm talking about the kinds of surveillance that we will we'll deal with as we navigate mainstream institutions that are hospitals and healthcare facilities, financial institutions, the labor market, and um, educational institutions, as well as sort of other institutions like the police and, and the IRS, right? So these everyday, almost kind of boring institutions. And I don't mean that to sort of, you know, knock on any of these places or these institutions, but it's just the mundane aspects of living in the United States as a person who is just on the radar of all of these different institutions. And then thinking about the consequences of these everyday forms of surveillance from the authorities in these institutions for a particular group of people who are not just undocumented, right? Undocumented is one aspect of their identity, um, but it is also kind of this umbrella term that encompasses, you know, to be a racialized minority, to be poor, to be otherwise subordinated in the United States. And so by surveillance, I mean the interactions that you're having with these everyday institutions and how they're making evaluations of you as both a person, but also a person who happens to be undocumented, but also a person who happens to be undocumented and who happens to have US-born citizen children. And so those are the forms of surveillance that are the real subject of my book, bookended, by these immigration surveillances, these these forms of immigration surveillance that happen as you're entering the country. And then in the very last empirical chapter, I talk a bit about um, the kinds of immigration surveillance that are expected of folks who are legalizing or who are going through immigration court. And so you turn in these records that you've accumulated accumulated through your everyday forms of surveillance. Um, to try to convince a judge or some other immigration bureaucrat 
that you are worthy of being in the United States. And so there's there's a surveillance, there's immigration surveillance comes in when you enter the country and as you're trying to sort of stay in the country long term. And then it's, so they bookend these everyday forms of surveillance. Um, but those everyday forms of surveillance, of course, overlap sometimes with immigration surveillance. But really, it's that everyday form of surveillance, those everyday forms of surveillance that I'm I'm focused on in the book. So can you talk about, um, in terms of people coming into the country, what kind of motivations did you hear from, you know, the people that you spoke with? What were their motivations for, for emigrating? Yeah, I, I think, and I was, I was chatting with somebody about this the other day, that we often demand exceptional, dramatic stories from immigrants so that they can, you know, be worthy, quote unquote, of being in the United States. And, you know, there is some of that in the book. Some people were dealing with very extreme conditions of gang violence or political instability. And so they fled to the United States, but weren't actually processed as asylum seekers because it's a very scary process to embark in, embark on in this country for various reasons. Then there were others who had your typical sort of, oh, I wanted to migrate to make better money, to take care of my family. My dad was sick. We needed to save, send money back home. I wanted to contribute to the household. And then I think there are these sort of rarer studies. You know, one woman in the study told me that she literally came to the United States because she lived in a small town and she had a bad breakup and she just wanted to be away from the 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 boy she had broken up with and i'm like you know more power to you you know uh (laughs) and it's it's one but it's one of these things where you know i think that's a completely valid reason for migrating it just may be that the immigration system may not think of that as a completely valid reason for migrating to the u.s because you know we and by that i mean the u.s immigration system demands that people fit into these buckets right of are you here to contribute through your employment are you here to contribute through your education are you here to contribute through some kind of humanitarian mission because we're you know trying to save you from something or are you just here on a short-term tourist visa because otherwise there's really no reason for you to be here and it turns out that once you try to put people into these categories these categories become a little too constraining for the complexity of everyday life. And so I think there are a lot of people who come to the U.S. for for all kinds of very good reasons that fit easily into these categories. And then there are a couple of people who, you know, have no, no less right to be able to move and leave their everyday lives for a new everyday life, but yet whose stories may not align with the broad buckets that we give people uh, as, as we you know, try to regulate something that we call the immigration system. I loved reading about, like, I think there was one person who they were like, ah, it was an adventure, right? And yeah. I'm like, yeah, like young people have always done that. <laughs> you know, I'm going to pick up and go someplace else. Um, yeah, and just have a different kind of life in a different kind of place. And I just thought that was, yeah, it was great to, to read about. Yeah, I, I, I think I write in the book, uh, I, I can't remember if it survived to the very final version of the book, but one thing I wrote about at some point, and I think it's still in there, is that, you know, we all think of migrating to the U.S. from another country as sort of this big, insurmountable, ludicrous hurdle that folks have to overcome. But in the same way that, like, I moved from, you know, Ithaca, New York, when I was finishing my postdoc 
all the way to Palo Alto, California to start my job, right? Like that's a six hour plane ride. I don't even know how long that is driving. Um, but it is not, I mean, that is a big move that is for some people bigger than the move from whatever state they're from in Mexico to Texas. And, and so we think of these things where we move for jobs or we move for loved ones or we move because we need to just try something new within the U.S. We think of that as sort of big life changes that we all undertake as sort of empowered young professionals. But it turns out that that is also how a lot of the people in my study thought about coming to the U.S., that it is a thing that is available to them because so many people in their communities and families have done it beforehand and so they know how to do it. And it doesn't seem like it's that far away. It doesn't feel like it's this, this insurmountable hurdle that they won't know how to overcome with the help of those who've, who've gone before them. And, and so it's not to trivialize how dangerous the, the border crossing experience is, especially as you're entering the U.S. undocumented. But it is to say that, you know, alongside moving states within Mexico, yeah, why not just go to the U.S.? That is something that was available to a lot of the folks in my study who are migrating in the pre-2007 period. Yeah, that completely makes sense. I just had not, I had not thought of it that way. So, <laughs> rude about. Um, so speaking of, of crossing the border, can you talk about, I thought it was really interesting. I had not thought of, the, of this either, but um, the decision to either, you know, get a visa, like, um, you know, to just come in and visit for a little bit, right? And then stay longer or to just forego that process and go ahead and cross. It was interesting to me the way that people sort of made that decision. So if you could talk a little bit like, yeah, why do some people choose to come over with a visa and others not so much? Yeah. So, you know, I'm a sociologist, so context always matters. And that can be a very frustrating answer. But let me tell you a bit uh, about what that means. So basically, you know, people understand, especially at this point in the Mexico-U.S. migration stream, it's, it's not lost on folks how the immigration system works. It's not lost on folks who gets a visa. It's not lost on folks all that goes into applying for a visa. So the first step of the process is just to decide whether you're going to migrate or not. And often that's disconnected from the reality of just whether I'm going to go and get a visa or not. And it's, that's because, you know, usually you first say, well, do I even want to look into this? you first decide, am I going to migrate? If the answer is yes, you're like, okay, maybe I'll look into this now. But for some people, they don't really need to look into anything because so many people have gone before them that they have heard through the grapevine what that process entails. And so some folks, if they know that uh, they have the income and wealth that they believe the immigration system expects them to demonstrate on their application for a visa, if they believe they have sufficient income and wealth and justification for coming to the U.S., they may try to submit an application because they know that they have the time, they have the resources, chances are they're relatively privileged, and you know, odds are probably good given what they've heard that they'll be approved for a visa. So some people, even those who were ultimately denied, did try because they came from well-to-do families and they thought that they would be a shoe-in for a visa. Other people just did not even waste their time. And I would say from a systemic, from a system, a systems perspective, if you do want 
if you do care as a U.S. immigration system about people entering the country uh, with some kind of authorization, then you want to make sure that people understand, accept that the process is not a waste of their time. And so it's super dangerous, I think, from a systems perspective, when you've created a system that is so burdensome, expensive, uh, you know, uncertain that uh, nobody wants to participate in it because they already know uh, what's going to happen. And so there are a lot of people, and, and there's this. Her name is Adriana, and in, in the study, she's uh, she was always she has she has the gift of gab, uh, which is it's you know I always appreciate as an in depth interviewer. Uh, I also, I think, might have too much of a gab, but here we are. Um, but she she told me, you know, she said she grew up poor in this sort of very rural village and did not really know even how to read back in the day, um, didn't even waste her time submitting an application. And now the town that she's from has a lot of sort of uh, U.S.-born uh, white people who are just going, she calls them, you know, the, the gringos, as she called them, who go there to, you know, live in a beach town or buy cheap, you know, less expensive property or something like that. And she said, well, if I had just stayed there, uh, maybe I would have married a, a gringo and been able to come to the U.S. legally. But now she's lived in the U.S. undocumented for 10 or 15 years. And, you know, she just never even tried to get a visa because, she had no wealth, no income to speak of, no relatives at home, and, and no U.S.-born or, or permanent resident relatives who could sponsor her for any kind of visa. And so you've got this camp now of people who, ha- you know, it's the haves and the have-nots all over again, right? So the haves may try it uh, because they understand that they're relatively privileged, whereas the have-nots understand that the system is not designed for them. Um, and so... What's the point of even trying when the system was not made for me? And, you know, so you see these two camps. And if you get a visa, the actual experience of crossing the border is one thing. If you don't get a visa, the experience of crossing the border is this completely other thing. So dangerous um, to and risky. But I, I think I think that is sort of the, the bifurcated process that I talk about a bit in the book. Um, so kind of going in a different direction, I was interested in how the folks that you spoke to responded to American stereotypes about immigrants from Mexico and Central America in particular, and, you know, the kinds of like desires, right, that, that in part sort of fueled those responses that they had. Yeah, there's a lot of this that comes up throughout the book. And as, as the analyst, right, sort of the sociologist in the room, you try to find the right way to what to do with those perspectives. Uh, because on the one hand, you don't want to reproduce the same stereotypes that are promoted by politicians and, and even some of these undocumented immigrants that I interviewed. And But at the same time, these are their, the perspectives that they're sharing. And so it's my task as the analyst to situate those, those insights into context. And so a lot of these uh, study participants talked a lot about how you know, if you're an undocumented immigrant who is a criminal, you should be deported. But if you're not a criminal, you should stay here. A lot of people talk about how, you know, they're they're poor, but they're not coming here to leech off of the U.S. government. They're they're just taking care of their kids. And so th- these are some of the biggest stereotypes that dominate the book. Sort of this idea of criminality and this idea of what's called public charge, 
and that you are primarily dependent on government assistance to, su- to survive in the U.S. And so these stereotypes emerge from different places. Um, the, the criminality trope, I think, is very common in public discourse uh, and even well-meaning immigration advocates sometimes unintentionally reproduce this sort of deserving versus undeserving immigrant trope based on criminal record, uh, not, not necessarily considering that criminality in the U.S. is itself a socially constructed category um, and you know what behaviors are criminalized are themselves patterned by race and class in this country, as so many sociologists have shown before me. Um, and so... Uh, in chapter two, uh, Ricardo is he opens he opens the the chapter. You know, we're sitting in this Chinese restaurant eating a buffet after he had a long day on the construction site, and we're talking about um, you know how he can manage to live in the U.S. as an undocumented immigrant for twenty years without really worrying, at least as he told it, about the police. And he says, "Well, you know, because." You know, if I come into your house, why am I going to jump on your bed and make a mess of things in the same way that if you come into my house, why why should you come into my house, jump on my bed and make a mess of things? So I said, OK, but do, I mean, do you really mean that you never worry about the police? And then I, it was I couldn't have planned it any better. Right. Then the these cops pull into the parking lot and enter the same restaurant that we're in. And he sort of signals to them from the window. And he says, look. Here's two people, or here's two officers entering this restaurant. Um, if I'm loud and making a mess, they're going to come for me. But if, and I'm undocumented, but you're a U.S. citizen, son. And if you're loud and making a mess, they're not going to bother me. They're going to bother you. So he really sort of honed in on these sort of individualized behaviors that he felt like were completely within his control to manage the threat of policing in his everyday life. Uh, to justify why, you know, it was okay for him to be an undocumented immigrant and not really worry about the threat of deportation via everyday forms of policing, because he says, well, I'm a well-behaved person, but if others like me are not well-behaved, well, to hell with them, they should be deported. And it's a strong statement, but I try to contextualize in the book that Ricardo is simply you know, parroting is too strong of a word, but effectively parroting these national discourses about, you know, who we want as immigrants in the United States and how, you know, back when the Obama administration began prioritizing the deportation of immigrants with criminal records, that messaging sort of permeated deep down or percolated deep down into the consciousness of undocumented immigrants in the U.S. And they now recognize, oh, okay, well, maybe I'd be okay as long as I don't have a criminal record, just turns out that it's not always up to you uh, whether you do or do not have a criminal record in this country. And so that's that's the rub. And then the this messaging about uh, about being a public charge that is also through that's especially in chapter three of the book, um, where parents are worried about getting public benefits and things like that on behalf of their kids, and that has been a long-standing tension for immigrants in this country uh, ever since the public charge rule was invented in, in the late 1800s. Um, so that one, I think, is kind of like, you know, maybe you're born with it, maybe it's Maybelline, right? I think in this case, it's like this immigration system has long had this aspect of um, stereoty- of, this, of this racialized and classed stereotype 
of the public charge rule as the foundational element of the immigration system. And so the system itself was born with these tropes embedded uh, into it, into into the system by design. It's just that who it's targeted has evolved over the years, uh, such that now it's sort of these these uh, immigrants from Mexico and Central America who who bear the disproportionate burden of this public charge stereotype. Um, can you talk about why engaging with surveilling agencies might not only be necessary, excuse me. <clears throat> but also actually helpful for undocumented immigrants in particular, especially in terms of creating a record of their time in the U.S. I thought this was super fascinating. Um, and if you could touch on, I, well, I don't know, you, you kind of covered this, but if you have anything more to say about like how immigrants are trying to set themselves up to be understood as like a good person, right? Um, while they're sort of creating these, very carefully creating these sort of records. Yeah, I, I think... I think it's the the foundation of the book, right? But it's this idea that you know nobody really has a choice in the U.S. about whether they're interacting per se with these surveilling institutions. Like both Kendall, you and I, you know, have, have you know I don't know a whole lot about your backstory, but I'm assuming you went through schooling. You probably went to the doctor a few times growing up. Perhaps your your parent or guardian took you there. Um, and in the same way that, you know, I remember being pulled out of school because one day I just, it turned out I didn't have like one of my vaccinations, even though my parents like regularly took me to get vaccinations. But, you know, back in the day, they kept all the records on the paper card as opposed to the, the electronic system. Now I'm dating myself. Um, I have my yellow exactly, vaccine card. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, those of us who were born in Taylor Swift's year of 1989 will understand this. Um, but I think that, the point is that um, there's very little choice about some aspects of surveillance in the United States. No matter how good you are, no matter how well behaved you are, you may you may still have an encounter with the police because law the enforcement of law can be subjective. No matter how good you are, you may still have to go to the doctor because inevitably you get sick. No matter how good you are, you may still get in trouble at school because uh, how teachers evaluate good and bad behavior is patterned by all kinds of characteristics that we as sociologists write about extensively, uh, and so on and so forth. And so all this to say, there's not a whole lot of choice that people can make about whether they will receive records. Sometimes these records just come to be as a function of living in the U.S., that's the first point. But the second point is undocumented immigrants, like many parents, understand this dynamic. They understand that there's a certain inevitability to these records and their interactions with surveilling authorities. And so they have to make sure, especially in their as undocumented immigrants, that they're not rocking any kind of boat. So they have to make sure that they're not getting pulled over by the police. They have to make sure that they are not engaging in behaviors that might attract police attention. They have to make sure that they are paying their taxes. They have to make sure that they are working hard, but not you know, stealing from the government in some way. They have to make sure that their kids are well provided for, because if not, then CPS might get called or the police might get called because a teacher or doctor who may be well-meaning all of a sudden has reported them to these higher authorities 
who could then perhaps ask them, and, and all of this could escalate into deportation. So it's a lot to carry in one's body and a lot to hold into one's mind uh, as you're as you're living everyday life. But that is the reality of what it means to be undocumented and poor and a racialized subordinated population in this country. And then beyond that, adding to those three characteristics, you're also adding that you're a parent of a kid who lives in a low-income, racialized, and undocumented household. And so the records that you're collecting over your time in the U.S., you're not doing it necessarily to show how good you are, per se. You're doing it because this is the life that you lead, and as it turns out, the records that you just happen to be accumulating reflect how good of a person you are, because most people... I think are fundamentally good, uh, despite all, despite much reason for cynicism. I think that's a lot that that's a lot of what we're seeing in this study. So that's number one. The number two is I think that they also fundamentally understand, and this is coming from um, you know the the start and stop the sputtering engine that is comprehensive immigration reform that sometimes is on its way up the mountain and then sometimes, you know, like explodes on the, on the, on the rail track, uh, on the train track. Um, I don't mean to like kill Thomas the engine or whatever, but like that's the metaphor that popped into my mind. Um, And so the, I think the, you know, when, when DACA was announced uh, by the Obama administration back in, in 2012, um, you know, everyone saw what those expectations were for the DACA recipients. They had to have graduated from high school or have a GED or be in military service. They had to be a certain age. They had to, you know, show that they've been a good member of society and so on and so forth. And, you know, this is at, 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 at bottom, this is fundamentally what most of the immigration paperwork that people will eventually hopefully have the opportunity to turn in, that's fundamentally everything the immigration system will ask for. It's going to ask for your taxes. It's going to ask for your report cards. It's going to ask for proof of residence that you've been here for this long. And so all this to say, people don't engage with these institutions because they know that one day they'll have the opportunity to legalize because they don't know that they'll have that opportunity. They don't know that opportunity is coming because they've been promised and the promise vanishes. They've been promised and the promise vanishes. But what they do know is that there are these more everyday forms of surveillance that are characterizing their daily lives that they have to be cautious of. And so as they do this dance where they are both visible but not too visible to these immigration or to these to these everyday institutions, they keep in mind that the, the reason they have to be visible is to prevent punishment from their ordinary routines. But the reason they can't be too visible is because they might overstep the boundaries of what it means to be undocumented in the US and therefore prevent them from ever accessing a legalization opportunity that may or may not come, right? (laughs) I think that is sort of the fundamental point that they kept raising to me. It just may or may not come. So they're proceeding from the assumption that perhaps it will come, perhaps it will not, But in the meantime, I can at least maintain my status quo, go to my job, raise my kids while avoiding the threat of punishment that that might lead to my family separation in the meantime. And so when I say a complex dance, that's what I mean by that, right? It's sort of this 
Um, this give and take, and it, it varies across time and space, right? Maybe today I'm involved, but tomorrow the law changes. And so I withdraw a little bit and then the law changes back. And so I move forward again. And it's this really complex reality that we just force on undocumented immigrants and their families so that, so that they can get by for them so that one day their kids might be able to get ahead. I think that leads us really nicely into my next question, which, you know, obviously a part of, you know, being a, a good a good uh, citizen or material for a good citizen in the U.S. and uh, avoiding the public charge, you know, business is is being able to provide for yourself financially and get employment. But obviously we we as a nation make it very difficult sometimes for um, folks like the ones that you were talking to, to, to find employment. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what some of those obstacles, um, have been for those people that you talk to and, and sort of how do they go about navigating this? Because it's, you know, just reading about it, it's like, this is so overwhelming and exhausting, you know, it's, uh, amazing sort of what they're, what some of these people were able to, um, to provide for themselves against sort of huge odds. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming most of my readers will not will not have expected to become tax experts uh, while reading my book, and and it's one of these things where the immigration. I think it was a former immigration judge who said that immigration law is second in complexity only to tax law, but there's no turbo tax for immigration, and and I think you know a lot of what's happening in my book, uh, in particular as it relates to employment and taxation is exactly this complexity that manifests itself for the undocumented families that I study. So the first thing to keep in mind is that to be undocumented in the U.S. just means that you don't have work authorization. Like, you know, we can bracket DACA recipients who may be able to get work authorization, but that's a very small slice of the 10.5 million undocumented immigrants who live in the U.S. Beyond that, you do need to work. And there are a couple of ways that you can do that. And some of the ways are more visible to the public, I think, than other ways. So the, the, I think that the most commonly understood assumption is that if you're undocumented, you're working under the table. And under the table means that you haven't really submitted employment paperwork, perhaps you're paid in cash, uh, and perhaps your employer already knows you're undocumented and therefore, you know, you're just, you know, you're, you're, you're living day to day at the whims of this, of this employer. There's another way, and this is very common among the people in my study, which is through uh, papeles chuecos, which just means like false identity documents. And it's usually the combination of a social security card and a green card. And the social security number actually belongs to someone, to someone real who is not you. And the green card may also belong to someone, someone who's not you, but it displays your face and your name. And so there's a something that happens where the social security card green card combination is what you turn in to your employer um, as part of the I-9 form that we all have to fill out to show that we're verified to work in the U.S. And, you know, the employer may or may not run it through a, a federal database that verifies your employment authorization, but they're required to keep it on the books for upwards of three years. And so long as that form is there in a file, but not checked, you're good. But the second that somebody runs your number and your name through the system, it's gonna, there's going to be a mismatch. Your name may be real, but it doesn't match the green card or the social security number. 
at that point, the, you can either correct your paperwork or you can leave your job. And that's usually what happens because there's no real way to correct your paperwork because the, the documents are fraudulent. Then there's this third way. And this third way is uh, what's called an, through an individual tax ID number. Now, none of nobody who has an individual tax ID number, like the fact that you have it doesn't mean that you're authorized to work in the U.S., but it does mean that an employer does not have to check your work authorization. It does mean that you can work as an independent contractor in the same way that you can work for Uber or Lyft or something like that, as an, or DoorDash as an independent contractor uh, who's not paid benefits, who's not paid any of these sort of living wages, but you can at least run your own business. Perhaps you have a house cleaning service or you're a house painter or something like that. You can run your own business as an independent contractor. You're still responsible for paying all of your payroll taxes, your social security contributions and the like, but you are kind of working legally, even as sort of you remain undocumented in the US. So those are the three pathways that the people in my study worked and found work. But at the end of the day, no matter how you worked, there was still the reality that your employer always knew you were undocumented or at least assumed that you were undocumented. So that meant that if they didn't want to pay you, if they wanted to pay you less than your due, if they wanted to sort of fire you just before the job was completed regardless, all of these ideas of labor market exploitation are still a thing among the people in my study, regardless of how they worked. But it was still one of these things where there are some better ways of working illegally and some worse ways of working illegally. And for the, for the IRS, the individual tax ID number is something that they're really promoting so, you know, fun fact that uh, undocumented immigrants used to have access to a social, a social security number until 1972, which is very recent, actually. You know, it feels like it's so long ago, but that's actually not too far back. Um, and the, IRA, uh, the Social Security Administration just stopped in 1972 because they didn't want, as part of this larger punitive turn in, in immigration uh, policy in the U.S., um, and so now the I-10, the individual tax ID number, is, is kind of like this, this way of, of you know, getting them back in that direction, but without giving them a social security number. It's kind of like legal, but not legal, but still legal. Um, and it's this gray area in the law that we force a lot of undocumented immigrants to into. But the IRS and its uh, public, public materials notes that it could have good positive immigration consequences because it's a way of tracking both your residence in the U.S., but also your employment and your compliance with, you know, federal laws in this country. And, you know, that is good for a lot of immigrants who are trying to show that beyond the benefit of a doubt, beyond the, beyond the benefit, uh, beyond a shadow of doubt that they are wonderful contributors to society because we demand them to do hoops and jumps and and whatever to to show that they belong here and taxes and employment is just one way to to demonstrate that belonging so again another dance that people have to do but uh who but they manage it with a lot of grace and charm that the system often deprives deprives them Yes, I think that leads beautifully into, uh, well, we're kind of sticking with the third chapter, um, which I wanted to mention that the chapter um, title is Good Immigrants or Good Parents. And um, speaking of 
you know, complex dances that folks are being forced to perform. Um, I was wondering if we could we could talk a little bit about, yeah, what is this tension between being a good immigrant or being a good parent and how are folks navigating this? Yeah, so of course, everyone wants to be all the things. You want to be the best that you can be like no one ever was to quote Ash Ketchum. But the reality is that there are so many constraints that undocumented immigrants face that effectively, if they were completely compliant with the the letter of the law in the sense that they sort of did the, that you just completely avoided medical institutions, you just completely avoided welfare institutions, um, you know, that might jeopardize your ch- your children's well-being. And at the same time, if you are taking too many resources from uh, medical or public service institute, public assistance type organiza- uh, institutions, you might have a problem where now you've accidentally stepped into this territory of being a public charge. So here we are, we make immigrants be tax experts, uh, we deprive them of living wages, and then we say, okay, you your life has moved on, no longer are you just an undocumented immigrant, but now you have a kid because you know, you're going through the life course, and of course you have a kid because that's what happens to a lot of people as you age. You just sort of move on and start a family, uh, even if you're undocumented, right? And so... Now you've got this new set of challenges. Perhaps you know the system doesn't care if you, as an undocumented immigrant, are um, you know unable to take care of yourself by going to the doctor or can't feed yourself because um, you know they're depriving you of, a, of enough money to live and work in this country. But ostensibly, they they at least say that they care about the well-being of children in this country. And you can take that at face value, right? And, and just, well, we won't interrogate that today uh, because of course there's a tension between not taking care of the kid's parents and direct consequences for the kid. So, you know, a lot of the people in my study became involved with a lot of service type institutions, medical welfare types, um, once they found out they were pregnant and, or the, the child was on the way. And, a lot of times they didn't want to be involved in these service institutions, but they were feeling really sick. So the pregnant parent would go to a clinic or, or the ER and they'd discover they're pregnant. And to the to the credit of the hospital or the clinic, they would encourage the, the person to sign up for uh, the children's health insurance program, which offers pregnant people uh, prenatal care, limited prenatal care, and up to two postnatal visits. And as long as they continue to meet the income, household income eligibility criteria, the kid, once they're born, will immediately be enrolled in the program and that children's health insurance program will cover the kid through um, as they age, which is great. Um, but it's also this nerve wracking situation for the undocumented parent. And that's because you, know, you are excluded from many public benefits in the U.S., there, these uh, these hospital authorities are telling you that you're eligible for this one, but that's weird because you're not supposed to be eligible for anything, and that's what everyone has told you. You're not eligible for anything, and you worry that taking this benefit will mean that, you know, down the road you've you've sort of effectively shot yourself in the foot, that you'll no longer be eligible for any limited 
legalization opportunity that comes that becomes available. But then you think about all these other constraints. Well, your kid is going to be it has to go to the doctor. Is going to be regularly at the doctor by age four or five. They'll be in school. Teachers will be evaluating them. Social workers will probably see if they're hungry or not well kept or something like that. And so a lot of the resources in terms of food assistance and healthcare and even WIC, uh, the you know women, infants, and children program that offers like a basket of food items to kids under the age of five. Um, you know, you, you start to take these resources on behalf of the kid, if only to stave off a future form of punishment from these everyday authorities that you're dealing with. And so what people in my study were uncertain of was whether taking some of these benefits would then jeopardize their future, their long-term future in the U.S., but they understood that at least in the short term, not taking these resources, not taking care of their kids because they couldn't afford to because of all the constraints that they're facing as undocumented immigrants could mean bigger problems for their families in the short term. So they had learned to live in the U.S. as undocumented immigrants by themselves. But when when you have kids, that, that decision calculus changes and you kind of have to step out a bit more uh, into a, a world that's maybe less comfortable to you and but and perhaps more difficult to manage um, and so, such that involvement really becomes the cornerstone of of your interactions with a lot of these institutions so I want to move us now to your final chapter um, in which you're discussing some of the, the um, how the sort of context in which immigrants records, come to light affects how those records are interpreted, um, especially in deportation proceedings. So could you give our listeners just maybe like a couple of examples of how context matters um, in terms of immigrants' records of, of engaging with these um, surveilling institutions that you know, you've been speaking about in the book? Yeah, so the, our immigration system is really great at creating artificial categories. And one, one set of artificial categories is between affirmative petitions on the one hand and defensive petitions on the other hand. Affirmative petitions are what are kind of what they sound like, right? That I affirmatively am going to submit something to an application to US Citizenship and Immigration Services for them to consider my candidacy for a visa or green card or citizenship. This is a process that the government describes as non-adversarial. Uh, you know, so for everyone at home, Kendall made a face, right? And I think that that is the right uh, face to make, Kendall. And that's because it is, it still feels very adversarial to a lot of people who are going through it. Still, you know, you don't necessarily need a lawyer. As long as you, if you're good and diligent at paperwork, you know, maybe you'll get through it by yourself. But everyone in my study who was going through this process, this affirmative process, still hired a lawyer because it's still very scary. So in any case, you know, at this point, you are picking and choosing, you know, you've chosen to legalize or to, you know, apply for DACA or whatever your benefit is. And you are submitting all of the paperwork that shows that you are eligible for that opportunity. And that's pretty easy to piece together, right? Um, you know, you've lived here for 10 to 15 years. You know, the lawyer is instructing you, um, you know, how to create an application that is likely to give you to get you the benefit, and it still feels scary. But it's you know there's no 
if you fail, you know, if, if something goes wrong in the application, chances are you're not going to be ordered deported. There is the possibility of you being turned over to your file being turned over to ICE, and that does happen sometimes. But for the most part, you know, it's a manageable process. And if at first you don't succeed, you could try again. You just have to pay another couple hundred or thousand dollars to manage the process, which itself is a hurdle that people have to climb. But you can at least show that you are eligible for this opportunity in a way that um, makes it likely that you'll get the benefit. And like naturalization applications, for example, I think 93% of those get approved by U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services every year. So that's a pretty good number. You know, I would call that an A minus. Um, so there's still room for improvements. Um, I, I think an A is an A, but here we are. Uh, but on the other hand, there's these defensive petitions. And defensive petitions are advertised as adversarial by the government. And, and, so, and that means that a lot of the power dynamics have shifted. Uh, so if you are... If you submit an affirmative petition, you kind of feel like you're in the driver's seat. Whereas if you are submitting a defensive petition, it means that you are definitely in the back seat, your seatbelt is on and you might be wearing handcuffs. Um, and it's one of these things where, um, you know, your the burden of proof is on you to not just demonstrate that you are eligible for some kind of opportunity, but that whatever is the reason why you got caught up in the backseat in handcuffs, you know, whatever that reason is, it is offset by all of these positive circumstances about who you are as a person, as an immigrant, as an individual, and so on and so forth. The rub, though, is that no matter, depending on why you landed in the backseat, uh, it's very possible that you've rendered yourself ineligible under the current immigration system for any kind of relief from deportation. And so, you know, the in immigration court, I saw a lot of people who the judges might consider to be superlative in so many ways and, and often, you know, lauded them as, as superlative in so many ways. Like, oh, okay, what brought you here today? Oh, a marijuana conviction. Nothing I can do for you. Bye. Um, and that's, that's simply because that's the federal statute, right? The federal statute is very unforgiving when it comes to a lot of kinds of drug crimes. Um, uh, of course, we can talk about the racialized and class dimensions of, of, of recreational drug use in the U.S., but I don't think a lot of people are ready for that conversation. But the, the, the broader point, though, is that even if you have the opportunity to submit a defensive petition, the cards are stacked so high against you. The government has all the playing cards and you have to start constructing your own deck to try to outwit their playing cards. But you're doing it without a lawyer. You have no right to public defender. You're probably in detention. Um, and you know you probably don't can't afford both uh, the lawyer and the, the fees to apply for these different kinds of defensive petitions. And chances are you're the primary breadwinner in your family. So the longer you languish in detention, the longer it's going to take for your family to have any kind of income to survive. And so you may often just ask for the deportation, not so that you can just be deported back to your home country and stay there, but so that you can, it's faster and cheaper to re-enter the country after having been deported than it is to spend six months to a year or longer in detention with no guaranteed outcome because the government is always better 
at deporting you than you are at defending yourself. And so that is, I think, the, the structural constraints, right? There's one of agency and empowerment when you're submitting an affirmative petition. And there's one of, of, of oppression and constraint when you are submitting a defensive petition. And of course, there are some overlapping features of both. But I think that is the broad reality of how social structure ends up mattering for, for whether your records that you've accumulated in this country even end up mattering for your opportunity to become a formal member of society. Thank you for that. Um, so you close your book by proposing a set of solutions to some of the problems of our current immigration system. Um, could you, I don't, you offer a lot of solutions and they're all terrific, but I don't want to keep, uh, I don't want to keep you here for too much longer. So um, maybe if you want to kind of highlight a couple that you'd like to talk about, um, it's up to you. If you want to talk about all of them, you know, I'm good. <laughs> Kendall, I warned you, you know, having me on a, on a show, I'm, I have, I have a power of gab. I don't know if it's a gift or, or a curse, but I talk a lot. Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, when I give, when I give talks on the book, I actually have a slide where I talk about, you know, here are all these re reforms to the immigration system that we could do. And I won't repeat those here because there's nothing super novel or eccentric about this. We all know what needs to happen to change the immigration system. And I actually think that, you know, legalization is super important. I think a pathway to citizenship is super important. I think granting folks the right to immigration attorneys, publicly funded immigration attorneys in immigration court is super important yada, yada, yada. You know, I think there's a lot of people who would say all of these things and fundamentally agree with what I'm saying. But then when I'm presenting this, I have a, you know, I cross out all these solutions on my slide. And it's not because they're not important, but it's because it's just kind of like resetting the, re the wheel without actually changing the system uh, to some degree in the sense that you know, a lot of our solutions that we propose are about how do we make the, the current undocumented population go to zero? Okay, pathway to, pathway to citizenship, make visas more abundant and available. Um, you know, for those who are in immigration court, give them the right to, to defend themselves so they can stay here long term without having to face the threat of punishment and so on and so forth. And that is so important and so necessary. And yet, if we do nothing to obviate are these everyday forms of surveillance that these people are facing, where they're prevented from having driver's licenses, where they're not granted work authorization, where you know they're subject to scrutiny from police and other kinds of um, law enforcement agencies on the ground who are detaining them and or arresting them and charging them and convicting them with crimes that are uh, simply crimes of poverty or crimes of circumstance and so on and so forth. It turns out you change nothing of the material circumstances that a lot of these people are facing every day. Not to mention that even if we fix our, fix our current problem of, of the 10.5 million undocumented immigrants by granting them all a pathway to citizenship, more and more folks are gonna enter undocumented. And that's simply because our laws are reactive rather than proactive in terms of thinking about what it is people need to enter and live in a country that doesn't depend on their legal status and that doesn't depend on, on their relatively privileged access to resources that make it so that they're more likely to experience good outcomes in the immigration system than bad outcomes in the immigration system. So I think that even if we do nothing on the immigration system front, 
I think the most important, one of the most important things we can do immediately, and I think this is easier said than done uh, when it comes to, because it depends on where you live. Like I think in California, there's this effort to try to decouple access to institutional resources from your citizenship. Citizenship still matters. And, uh, you know, California is not some beacon of hope and, and aspiration or something like that, but it, it does some things right. And, I, you know, recently there was a Medi-Cal, which is the low-income um, healthcare for senior citizens, expansion to accommodate undocumented people over the age of, I think, 64. And and that was what that was pr- all thanks to advocates on the ground. Number one, there's a, this effort to expand that idea of access to Medi-Cal to younger populations over the next decade or so. And I hope that does happen. But I think, you know, not every place is California. And so the problem with that, I mean, you know, some people won't think of this as a problem, but it means that the context that you're in, the state context that you're in really matters for your opportunity to live a full life in this country. So I think to the the extent that we can decouple access to citizenship from access to institutions, you know, in the same way we've done for public K through 12 education in the same way that we've done for, I guess, like an individual tax ID number, because like U.S. citizens can also have that. I think it makes life easier for folks who are undocumented, who are here, who will always be here and who will always need and see, I think my dog is winding behind me, who, will, who, who are here and who will always be here and who will always need an opportunity to live a full life despite an immigration system that is trying to constrain how much of that life they can they can lead. So I think, you know, I write in the book a lot about these changes to everyday forms of surveillance and how we can start there even if, you know, Congress drags its feet on these larger term reforms to the immigration system, which are of course necessary, but even absent them, we don't need we don't need those to make these other more immediate changes. Yeah, I think it's a, it's it was great to read that final section because it's yeah, it's not just sort of um, there's not just one thing that we can be pushing for, right? We can be sort of attacking this problem in a lot of different ways. And yeah. for me that that's very hopeful. I tried. I tried to end on a positive, optimistic note, uh, despite the system itself being somewhat hard to, to deal with. But I appreciate that. <laughs> so we've I've taken up a lot of your time already. But oh, no. I'm... that's all me, Kendall. <laughs> but um, is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we haven't had a chance to touch on yet? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it can feel somewhat, I think, um, constraining, cynical sometimes to to be part of this journey of being scholars who study the immigration system and, and those of us who, who want to change the system. So, you know, in a, in a different conversation, somebody asked me, what, what are three takeaways, action items for the average listener that we can do to maybe give ourselves a little bit of hope or to sort of make a small sliver of, of impact on the system? And, you know, I'm a sociologist. I think small behaviors can aggregate, but I also don't think that any of the behaviors that I'll, um, the, the action items I'll describe will fundamentally alter the system, but it might make it less painful for people who are currently navigating it. So thing one, I think if listeners are out there and they have the means to donate, I would love and appreciate donations to immigration bond funds in your local communities. Uh, In the Bay Area, we have the the Bay Area Immigration Bond Fund, but I think you can donate to any local bond fund in your community. 
just to help people who've already been approved for bond from immigration detention to get out. Because sometimes it's just like an unreasonable amount of money for somebody, five to $10,000 to come out of immigration detention. And so to the extent that we can all give a little to help people reunite with their families, that would be great. Number two, I think for those of us who have the capacity to volunteer, and I think to volunteer regularly, emphasis on regularly, uh, in any capacity with a community-based organization could go a long way. If you have a car, simply driving people around to different appointments or to um, pick up paperwork that they need for their legalization petitions could go a long way among other kinds of volunteer activities. But the reason why you should volunteer regularly is because these community-based organizations need a lot of help and they invest in you by training you so that you should give them a small return on that investment by sticking around, I'd say for at least six months. I always, that's my, that's my minimum. And then number three, um, I learned about uh, the Villanova Interdisciplinary Immigration Studies Training for Advocates shortened as VISTA, V-I-I-S-T-A, which is an online program that trains students to become immigrant advocates uh, to help in, in, who, who are working in partnership with community-based organizations uh, to help uh, immigrants file affirmative and defensive petitions. So some of these advocates are only trained to handle you know, DACA applications or green card applications. But then there are some advocates who are trained to handle both the affirmative petitions and the defensive petitions. So they're not quite lawyers, but they're people with knowledge enough to help someone who is languishing in immigration court without an attorney to understand what their rights and options are, and at least at a very basic level, and to help them figure out how to file that paperwork so they can spend some time you know, getting that defensive petition filed so that they don't end up you know, missing out on an opportunity for them to remain in the country. So this one, the people I've met who participated in this program are either very early in their careers or at the very tail end of their careers. They want something new to do as, as they transition into retirement. But wherever you are in the life course, I think finding a way to give to those who who are not allowed to have, uh, I think is a, is a good way forward. So I think that's that's what I want to end on. Those were wonderful. I'm going to maybe steal that question from whoever. <laughs> um, so I, I also, I, so I usually close by asking what sometimes feels like a cruel question because you've just published this book, but um, before we let you go, is there anything else that you're working on that you would like to tell our listeners? Oh about? my gosh, I'm on the tenure track. So of course I am, um, <laughs> you know, of course I am. Um, so I finished data collection um, on, a, on a research project that will be my next book, um, thinking about immigration advocates across the country. We interviewed a couple dozen of them from the West, the South, the Northeast, and the Midwest, and asked them about their visions for change, what it means to change the immigration system, what, in, what hurdles they've encountered, what opportunities they've encountered, and so on and so forth, and thinking about um, how the system, the system itself is structured such that change has to be more micro, uh, despite folks working at the macro level to change it, right? So there are some people who are doing really important work in impact litigation um, to change some really horrible conditions that undocumented immigrants and their families face in the U.S., but again, impact litigation is reactive. So it's it's one of these things where 
you see an injustice of the current system as it's currently constituted, and you hope that by intervening, you're able to alleviate some of that injustice. But the fundamental structure of the system remains. And so the, the book is trying to chart this discrepancy between you know, cha- efforts to work toward change and the stickiness of an immigration system that doesn't want to change. And then I've got a, another another project that thinks about um, the relationship between immigration enforcement and various health outcomes. Um, that one is I'm super excited about because it's thinking about how to measure uh, perceptions of deportation threat at a, across time and place rather than just focusing on measures of policy across time and place as our measures of deportation threat. Because you can imagine a world where policies may be threatening, but people may or may not perceive them as threatening. So trying to figure out how to align the gap between perceptions of policy and actual policy and what these different what the gap between these ideas tells us about health outcomes is sort of this next frontier that I'm working on. And I'm in the midst of data collection now uh, funded by the Russell Sage Foundation on another project about the role of the federal courts in the immigration system. So thinking about what it means to be, what the federal judiciary means for how immigration law is enforced across the U.S. and what positive and negative aspects of the system are allowed to continue. So just just those things. <laughs> well, thank you again for making time for this interview with all of that on your plate. And um yeah, I look forward to to reading your your future projects. Those all sound really fascinating. Kendall, it's been my honor to talk to with you today. Thank you.